Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome into Nuggets Numbers. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. It is Monday night, as recording this one pretty late on an NBA Finals Day off, seat, or off day. excuse me. And it, I think Nuggets fans are really starting to feel the burn of the offseason and how, oh man, it was really fun that the Nuggets were in the Western Conference Finals, but when they ultimately did lose... Eh, you don't get a lot of news after that. You don't get a lot of exciting action, and there aren't any games to follow anymore. The free agency period isn't for a while. Uh, we've heard some things from Adam Silver about how the NBA probably won't start until January at the earliest, and Matt Moore of HP at HP Basketball um, Action Network, he, he seems to think that there is there's at least some possibility that the NBA could start as late as March. So, if that were the case, it's now October. It's it's early October now, so buckle up if that's the case. That would be five months away. Um, and that would be sad because there there is free agency. There's the draft. There's other things that are going to have to take into account. And there's going to be a lot of other news to cover uh, when it ultimately does break. But up until that point... I want to get into the off-season segments for Nuggets numbers and start to transition into things that I'm going to talk about going forward. Um, this podcast is going to be, it's still going to be once a week, but I might open it up to twice a week and then do a Denver Stiff show with the group uh, on Thursday nights for Friday. Um but we also may transition and do other things, and I reserve the right to kind of adjust the schedule based off of what's going on and and how this how the off season is opening up. So, the first segment of most of these shows is going to be referencing the climb, and the climb is a new series that I'm going to start on Denver Stiffs. I wrote the first segment of it. Uh, for Monday, and so I'm going to be posting it on Monday and then talking about it some in addition on Tuesday night or on Tuesday for Nuggets numbers. Uh, won't spend a ton of time on it, but I think it's important to kind of understand and appreciate where the Nuggets have come, why they are here, and then transition slowly into how they can ultimately summit. It's that's why I call it the climb uh, up to the top of the NBA hierarchy and win an NBA championship. I think those are interesting discussions, and some of them are theoretical, some of them are just hypothetical deals or free agency signings or draft picks that they should do, but we'll also start getting into a transition of what they're going to do and how, how that's actually going to bear itself out as November, December, and January bear on. So 
This is going to be fun to talk about. I'm going to use that as the first segment. But then the second and third segments are going to be the bulk of the podcast. And in this episode, going to be talking about the free agency of Jeremy Grant, why it's a big deal for the Nuggets, what other competitors they have, things of that nature, what I think will actually happen. And we're going to transition into that. But first, we're going to start with the climb and we're going to talk about Jamal Murray. So if you didn't read it today on Nuggets or on Denver Stiffs, excuse me, uh, I talked about Jamal Murray and I talked about his rise to stardom in the NBA and how that has really changed what the Nuggets are supposed to be doing uh, with their organization and with the franchise going forward. Um, one of the main quotes that I used from a former Denver Stiffs writer, current DNVR writer, podcaster guy, uh, Brendan Vogt, good friend of the program, uh, he summed up Jamal Murray's max extension in 2019 pretty beautifully. He said, this is a real gamble by the Nuggets to commit such a large number to Murray, and it's up to the 22-year-old to make sure that they didn't just lock themselves into trouble. The Nuggets brass have vocalized their confidence in Murray, and now they're putting their money where their mouth is with this max deal. Denver will enter a wide-open title race, banking on their young core and their continuity. The pressure is officially on. Well, (laughs) it sort of paid off, and I thought it was very prophetic of what Brendan actually said. Uh, Denver did bank on their continuity. They had multiple chances to trade their young pieces, to trade even Jokic, to trade Murray, to trade Gary Harris, uh, to trade Michael Porter Jr. They could have done that at the deadline. I'm not sure it would have helped anything, um, but they could have done it, and it appears to have paid off. Actually, it definitely has paid off because Denver made the Western Conference Finals, and they wouldn't have done so without what Jamal Murray did. In the regular season this year, he averaged 18.5 points, 4.8 assists, shot 34.6% from three. Those numbers in the playoffs jumped spectacularly. He averaged 26.5 points per game, 6.6 assists per game. That's a two-assist jump and a eight-point-per-game jump. And then he also shot 45% from three. True shooting percentage jumped seven points. It's unbelievable what he did. And to put that into perspective, only one other player in NBA history has ever averaged 26 points, six assists, and 40% from three in a postseason while going multiple rounds. And it's Steph Curry. And that comparison has followed around Jamal Murray for a long time, and justifiably so. He has proven over and over again that when he gets hot, he's one of the most explosive players in the NBA. He can fire up shots from any spot, shoots deep threes, gets to the rim, dunks even, Uh, has just a very crafty dribble and doesn't have a ton of like burst and athleticism like a LeBron James or somebody like that, but he still gets up there and dunks and does some crazy stuff. And I, I continue to look at what he has done and transition away from being just a regular season, kind of a, uh, going through the motions type to then just becoming a fireball an inferno in the playoffs and and having that ability having that capacity 
there are very few players in the NBA that can reach those heights. Clearly, it's only been done like a couple of times in history and once by the same player in Steph Curry. So I just find it fascinating and frankly amazing that Denver was able to get him for that max deal. They they foresaw what he was going to do before they did it and before he did it. And they took a big, big chance on somebody that they didn't know whether they were going to get it. But I do think that over his first, second, third, fourth years, like his first, second, and third year specifically, there were definitely signs that he could show up, that he could, when the pressure was on, would really perform. And in his first season, the game that Michael Malone highlights as the game that he thought Jamal Murray could really be something was the Chicago Bulls game back in November where Murray scored like 15 straight points in the second quarter and just took over the game and went from the Nuggets really struggling to the Nuggets having a lead. And this he was coming off the bench as a shooting guard, but still had the ball in his hands and did a lot of the same things that he's doing now. He then transitioned at the very end of the year once the season was out of reach to a starting point guard role. He had 30 points and 10 assists in one game. People weren't scouting him as a point guard, and and it was clear that, okay, that probably wouldn't be an every-night thing, but he showed the capacity to put up big numbers, big performances. In his second season, he transitioned into the starting point guard role, although that wasn't definitive either. Jameer Nelson beat him out in camp. If people don't know that, the reason why Jameer Nelson was, was traded was because Tim Connolly saw what was happening and saw that Jameer Nelson was going to win the starting point guard job because he thoroughly outperformed Jamal Murray and Emmanuel Moutier. So, Connolly took a chance on Murray, traded the veteran point guard, and Murray was in the starting lineup and has been in the starting lineup ever since. It was a slow process. He initially started his career at starting point guard as as more of an off-ball type Jokic was always controlling the offense, and there were like Gary Harris was very involved at that point. Murray was more of a more of a shooting guard than a point guard, honestly. But in game 82 against the Minnesota Timberwolves, he had to step up. And Gary Harris was injured. He was coming off the bench that game. Will Barton was playing well, but it was really Murray and Jokic who had to step up. Jokic dropped 35 points. Murray dropped 20 points and 6 assists, was relatively efficient. Not great, but efficient enough. And Denver couldn't get enough stops to win that game, and it went to overtime, and it was too bad. But Denver pushed a better team in the Timberwolves that year with Jimmy Butler and Carl Anthony Towns. They pushed that team to the brink, and that was because they had competitors there. Will Barton, by the way, was excellent in that game, so don't let that be lost. Um. But in Murray's third season, last year, 2018-19, Denver's three-fifths of their starting unit, Gary Harris, Will Barton, Paul Millsap, they were all injured at the same time in December. And the Nuggets needed somebody to step up in a big way. And it was Murray and it was Jokic. And those guys carried the entire Nuggets team through December. 
And that was a turning point for that Nuggets team and for, for this current group as well. Because Denver found out that they could rely on the Murray-Jokic pick and roll. And those two played their dance. They continued to do dribble handoffs and off-ball action and backdoor cutting and then traditional pick and roll sometimes, pick and pop. And they made it work. They developed some excellent chemistry. Took that all the way to the playoffs. And despite being a very, very young team, they made it work in the playoffs too. It was the 23-year-old Jokic and the 21-year-old Murray who were dominating in those games. And it was more up and down for Murray than it was for Jokic, but it was just still very impressive what he what he managed to do at such a young age. Uh, the numbers will speak for themselves. I, I didn't pull any for this exercise. But then this past season happened, and Murray had already inked the max extension, and he wasn't really performing up to the standard that the Nuggets were hoping. And he took that to heart. He took that personally. He said, to Michael Malone specifically, I hate that you question my consistency because I know that you're right. So he became more consistent. He got to a place where he continued to put out good quality production every single night. Uh, When he came back from his ankle injury in February of this past season, he was a different player. He averaged nearly 22 points and six assists, shot 39% from three in 15 games. Um, but it was still the regular season, and there were still some questions as to whether he could sustain that. Well, in the bubble, he did, and he even took on the leadership role as well. He voiced a lot of potential problems. He continued to motivate guys and drive them in the same direction, and they fed off of his constant energy and willingness and hard work and expertise and his ability to get things done. And lo and behold, you get get a season like he had where in the playoffs, 26 points, six assists, probably closer to 27 and seven, to be honest. Shot 45% from three. Unbelievable. Had 40 points in a closeout game seven against Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Patrick Beverly. Those four or those three have 14 all-defensive nods between them. 14. That's a lot of success. And Murray didn't even care. He just rose, and he continued to rise. This was after having 50, 42, and 50 in three consecutive games, in games in games four, five, and six in the first round. And then on the biggest stage against the Los Angeles Lakers, Murray didn't wilt. He didn't struggle. He had a lot of great games. And the only reason he struggled in game five was he was visibly like hampered by a bone bruise in his knee. Like, it was very, very, very clear. Um, but that's what he continued to grow through. He came a long way. Just like every star does. Every star doesn't start as being a star. You have to start somewhere, and Murray did. He worked himself up, continued to acquire the necessary skills that he needed to win, and now he's acquired the skills to be a star and the second, uh, not not second option. Like, Murray and Jokic, they're now co-options for the starting, for the main spot in the offense. Like, 
either one of them could be the winner. Like in the first round, Murray was the guy who drove them home. And then Jokic took over in game seven. In the second round, Jokic was the main guy who drove them home. And then Murray took over in game seven. Against the Lakers, with Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard kind of being extremely physical and drawing Jokic into foul trouble, Murray was still effective. He was still very, very good. Actually great. So I just think it's very impressive what he was able to do, what he was able to accomplish, and the consistency never wavered. He was always at his best, and there were some epic performances in the playoffs. This is something I won't ever forget as far as his development goes, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does for the rest of his career because the Nuggets think they have the best young dynamic duo in the NBA, and it's bordering on the best dynamic duo. I think you probably give that title to LeBron and AD now, but besides them, I don't know if you could take anybody else because Murray and Jokic, they got it. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into the rest of the podcast featuring Jeremy Grant's free agency. We'll be right back. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. back nuggets numbers ryan blackburn here i want to start off this podcast or start off this segment by saying i think that jeremy grant is extremely important for the nuggets future and that there are very few players that he could possibly be replaced with that the nuggets could acquire reasonably without giving up porter without giving up too many assets uh it would be very, very difficult to replace him and also do so in a healthful way for the organization. Uh, but I do want to talk about, let's go through the scenario and say, okay, what if Grant goes somewhere else? What if Grant decides that he doesn't want to be in Denver for some reason? Let's talk about who could possibly replace him on the open market. And this is between free agency, the draft, and trades. I'll get the draft out of the way. There is nobody in the draft that could replace him this year. Nobody. It's a really bad draft, and rookies are not good most of the time. They're, they're clearly not playoff ready for the vast majority of them. And the Nuggets are drafting 22nd overall, which means that they're not going to have their first pick. They're not going to just have a, a guy who could potentially replace Jeremy Grant fall to them. I don't think there are a lot of players that could, so let's avoid talking about it for now. Um, let's talk about free agency and let's talk about trades. I did a research, I did a list on basketball reference 
that yielded 39 players who played at the guard or forward position, had a 1,000 minutes played, so their starter quality for most of them, and they averaged at least 10 points, so they're involved in the offense to a certain degree, and they shot 35% from three with a three-point rate of 30%. So they still, they're perimeter-oriented. They still get a lot of shots. They get a lot of shots from the outside, and they're effective on those shots. There were 39 players who yielded those results. Eight of them are stars and are likely unobtainable without moving Porter. Uh, Chris Middleton, Jason Tatum, guys like that. Uh, Pascal Siakam. I don't think the Raptors would trade the Nuggets Pascal Siakam uh, for Michael Porter Jr. And it so that could be a guy, but it would possibly be a problem for the Nuggets given that they have certain things that they want to do with their offense and with Porter. And I'd, I'd like to see Murray, Porter, and Jokic on this team going forward. So let's discount those eight out of 39. Five of them are making too much money for Denver to justify acquiring. Tobias Harris is one. Gordon Hayward's another. Kevin Love is another. Like Those guys are, are good players, but they're not great fits, and they, they don't necessarily even do what the Nuggets would need a guy in Jeremy Grant's role to do. Denver needs that guy to defend. Tobias Harris, he's not going to be that guy. Gordon Hayward, definitely not going to be that guy. Kevin Love, definitely not going to be that guy. So let's not even talk about them. Three of them are ungettable via trade, in my opinion, um, without giving up Michael Porter Jr., and that's OG Ananobi, Duncan Robinson, P.J. Washington. Duncan Robinson's in the finals right now. I think the Miami Heat understand how valuable he is, and they're going to want to keep him around going forward. He's still so young and dynamic as a shooter that you don't move a guy like that, especially when you have Bam Adebayo on your team long-term, and you're looking to get Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like, you need shooters around those guys. Another nine players simply aren't good enough to really talk about. Guys like Dylan Brooks, Chetty Osman, uh, they're not great as it stands, and not to mention not a lot of them could defend anyway. A lot of them are on bad teams that don't necessarily prioritize defense, and they're more offensive-minded and still struggle at that in a lot of cases. So I don't even want to get into them. And then another three are free agents that will definitely earn too much money in free agency. Guys like Daniel Gallinari. So, I don't want, I'm not going to make you do math at home. That leaves 11 players to talk about. So, let's talk about them each individually. I want to use a simple checklist to see whether a player like this would fit what the Nuggets need. They need the player to be able to shoot. All of these guys can shoot reasonably. They need a player to defend. Playmaking forwards. So can they defend playmaking forwards? Can this player defend other positions as well? Because Michael Porter Jr. and Nikola Jokic and uh, Jamal Murray, they're not great defenders. Like, Murray's turned himself into a solid defender for sure. I think those other guys continue will continue to do so. But Denver needs versatility. They need a, a guy who focuses on the playmaking forwards, but also could defend guys like Donovan Mitchell in a pinch or Anthony Davis in a pinch. So can any of these guys do that? And then finally, can they fit in Denver's culture? And I think that's an important one that people don't necessarily talk about a lot. And most of these guys probably could, but there are some guys that won't. And we'll talk about them. 
So let's go through the players. Out of 11, Evan Fournier. I don't think he fits Denver's culture to start because he was here and then got traded, and I'm not sure he wants to be back. He might be back, but he doesn't really defend either, whether it's defending the playmaking forwards that Denver needs to match up with or to defend other positions. I don't think he really checks any boxes. So no, no, no. Uh, Number two, Nemanja Bielica. He's a Serbian. He would fit Denver's culture pretty well. He likes to pass. He likes to move. Uh, Can he defend other positions other than playmaking forwards? Yeah, he would be good defending fours. But the problem is that means that Michael Porter Jr. has to defend threes. And if you're replacing Nemanja if you're replacing Grant with Bielica, that means that you need somebody who can defend a three. And I don't think Bielica is that guy. So he could fit in on the bench, but as a guy who can defend starting caliber playmaking forwards, he doesn't really fit. Dario Saric is much of the same. Uh, Doesn't really fit that mold. Uh, He could potentially defend other positions. The the Suns like to use him as a small ball center late in the season. Um, And I don't even know if he would fit into Denver's culture. Like, don't really know much about Saric and doesn't seem like he's latched on anywhere. He was traded from Philly. He was traded from... Minnesota. If if the Suns are letting him go, which there probably are, it, it means that he's been unremarkable. So I don't know. Number four, Thaddeus Young. Uh, I don't think he can defend the playmaking forwards, but he would be good as a potential backup, um, maybe a backup option, because he can defend other positions. He could defend fours. He can defend fives. Um, and he does fit Denver's culture. He's a hardworking guy who's been around a lot of different teams, has been on successful teams, contributes to solid defense, knows his role. Um, he would fit pretty well. Now, if Denver were to miss out on a lot of guys, Thaddeus Young is actually a guy that I could see Denver trading for because he's with the Chicago Bulls right now, and Arturis Karnasovas was there. They don't necessarily need Thaddeus Young there because they have to continue def- developing guys like Larry Markinen, Wendell Carter, if they decide to draft some a big man up high, then they might decide to do that. Uh, they have Otto Porter. They have Daniel Gafford. There's a, there's a lot of bodies there. So I don't know if Thaddeus Young fits. So keep an eye on him. Uh, Larry Nance Jr. of the Cleveland Cavaliers. He might fit, but I don't think he defends threes. He's He did play some small forward with the Cavs, but he's not great at it. And I don't think that's a sustainable thing. But... Like Thaddeus Young, he would fit in other ways. He would be a guy who could defend fours and fives. He's a smart offensive player, and he can fit Denver's culture pretty well. He's a Wyoming grad, or not, I don't think he graduated, but he was at University of Wyoming, so he understands what it's like to be in a mountain time zone. Uh, so keep that in mind. Marcus Morris, he fits the first two criteria as well as you could possibly fit it. Uh, Can he defend playmaking forwards? Yes, he can. He's actually pretty good at it, and especially when he's surrounded by other good defenders, he's insulated pretty well and does a decent job. Can he defend other positions? Yes, he's pretty switchable too. Uh, Maybe not point guards, maybe not centers, but two through four, he's pretty good. But does he fit Denver's culture? No way. There's, There's no possible way that I want Marcus Morris around the Nuggets. Like, I don't think he would fit well with Murray and Jokic. I don't think he would be a great influence on Michael Porter Jr. And he's kind of a dirty player, to be frank. 
There, there's dirty and different. Like, I don't, I don't think anybody that that watches Marcus Smart thinks that he's a super dirty player. They, they know he's a hardworking player and just does everything that it takes to win. But Marcus Morris is different. He legitimately tried to trip and and injure Luka Doncic. Um, he's had cheap shots in his past. He bounced the ball off of Justin Anderson's forehead because he got mad at him. Um, I don't think he's a great fit. He's, I mean, he's a good on-the-court fit, but so much of what Denver has built is because of culture, and if he can't fit into the culture, that's a problem. Bogdan Bogdanovich is another guy that, he's kind of the inverse here. I don't think he fits well into defending playmaking forwards. I don't think he's a great defender in general. A lot of guys have success against him. But he would fit into Denver's culture. I think it would be a really cool thing to bring him to Denver as like a sixth man. Because I, I don't like him starting on a team that needs Murray, Porter, and Jokic to start. But if he was willing to come off the bench, be a sixth man. Uh, Denver currently has Will Barton in that role. But, I mean, Bogdanovich might even be better in that role and better suited for that than Will Barton is. So, I don't know. We're, we'll have to see. Either way, he's probably out of Denver's price range, so I wouldn't stress about it at, at all. Um, another guy who's out of their price range is Joe Harris. I don't see him taking a mid-level exception deal. If he does, then uh, it it would be prudent for Denver to try and go after him because there are very few players of his caliber as a shooter and a scorer that hit the open market and might be available for that money. This might be one of those years where he gets a deal that isn't as large as you would expect. Um, I would go after him with the MLE, but you're not going to expect him to defend your playmaking forwards, which means that he's coming off the bench, or maybe he's playing shooting guard, and you just kind of go all offense. It would be a fun offense if you had Murray, Joe Harris, Michael Porter Jr., Jeremy Grant, Nikola Jokic. That'd be dope. That would be that would be really, really good and a lot of fun. Um, but it's not good enough defensively to get past some teams, to get past a team like Houston or Portland or um, the Clippers again. Like, I don't think they could do that with Joe Harris in place of Gary Harris, for what it's worth. Lonzo Ball also fit into this list. He is more of a guard defender than a wing or forward defender, so... I don't think he would defend those playmaking forwards well. He's had some success, but he's had some major failures as well. Um, I don't know if he fits the culture. He might. He might not. Uh, I think he just wants to win, but he has a lot of baggage with him that it's not necessarily guaranteed that he would work out in Denver's culture next to Murray and Porter. Um, But can he defend other positions? Yes, he definitely can. He provides a lot of different things to the table. I would love to see him be Denver's starting shooting guard next year because I think Murray would work really well with him. I think Porter would work very well very well with him as well. Um, and Denver's offense would take a big jump if he was on the floor consistently. But you never know, and that that just might not be in the cards. I think he's at least a good project to, to check in on, we'll say. Um now, the last two players are the guys that should really talk about most. Kelly Olynyk and Jeremy Grant. Jeremy Grant checks all three of these boxes about as best as anybody can. 
Can you defend playmaking forwards? He proved that he could in these playoffs. He was successful against Kawhi Leonard until LeBron James proved he was the best player in the world. Uh, He was relatively successful against LeBron. And even then, LeBron just made extremely tough shots. He wasn't getting a bunch of easy shots. Um, Can Jeremy Grant defend other positions? Yes, he can. If he's on ball against Donovan Mitchell, it took him a little bit to adjust, but he did adjust. If he's on ball against Anthony Davis, it's not perfect, but he can do it. And anybody less talented than Anthony Davis, he's probably good enough. He's had success against Giannis. He's had success against James Harden. There are a lot of guys that he can guard consistently. And does he fit Denver's culture? Yes, of course he does. He clearly fits Denver's culture as a guy who's willing to do the hard stuff on defense on a consistent basis, isn't going to always get touches, but he just fits into the ethos of what they need. He doesn't rebound, yes, he doesn't rebound. But if Denver's going to start Michael Porter Jr., an elite rebounder, and Nikola Jokic, an elite rebounder, I don't think it matters as much as people think it does. The other guy... If Jeremy Grant were to walk, I think Denver needs to seriously consider trading for Kelly Oubre. Because he is is about as available and about as solid as you could get from a 6'8", versatile defender perspective who has some game. Um, He might not be the perfect fit. But there are definitely players that like that could be a lot worse than him. Uh, that's not a great argument for this for sure. But he does a lot of good creation on ball. He does a lot of good creation off ball. He fits well in a pace and space system around a point guard and center, which is basically what the Suns did with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. Um, he takes on tough defensive assignments. Not all of the tough ones, but most of them. And... I think he's underrated. Personally, I've thought he's underrated for a while. The advanced numbers don't really like him. But I think he's a guy that if you find the right system, then it would make sense. He's a guy that if you're Denver, he might start at shooting guard. He might start at small forward. He might start at power forward, depending on the situation. Um, If he were to replace Jeremy Grant, I think you could realistically start him at the three and Porter at the four and then potentially move them to the two and three respectively if you need to guard a guy like Davis with a, with a different player. Um, I don't know. I think he provides a lot more flexibility, and it's not like he prov- doesn't provide as much flexibility as Jeremy Grant, but he provides enough flexibility for this season that it's at least worth watching. Uh, but yeah, those are the only four players... There are four players, realistically, that I think could replace Jeremy Grant, or what Jeremy Grant does. And that's Marcus Morris, Lonzo Ball, Kelly Obre, and Jeremy Grant. Um, so really three players. Morris is out for me for culture reasons. Lonzo, I think, as I said, he's more of a guard wing guy. He's not going to defend power forwards at all. Uh, Ubre and Grant are the two guys. And I'll throw out another name, Aaron Gordon. He had a down shooting year this year, but he's still young. He's still athletic. He's a quality defender and versatile, and he's skilled. He has the ability to play make off the dribble for himself and others, and he's not going to be like a complete uh, waste of space in a playoff situation. He would be pretty good. Um, so, 
of all the players that Denver could realistically acquire, the two guys in general, I think, are Aaron Gordon and Kelly Oubre, who could potentially replace Grant without having without Denver having to give up Porter or without Denver hamstringing themselves to a bad contract. So I think that makes Grant very valuable. I think that because of Denver's cap room issues, that the easiest way and the cleanest way for Denver to replace the guy that they have is to just re-sign him. Just get him back. Uh, build around the core four of Murray, Porter, Grant, Jokic. I love that group. I think they're versatile enough and skilled enough offensively that you can make it work versus a lot of different teams. Um, but we're going to have to see. I'm looking forward to seeing what Denver does there um, and what, what Jeremy Grant does there because when we come back, third segment, we're going to talk about which teams are going to go after Jeremy Grant of the offseason. back. Nuggets numbers, Ryan Blackburn here. The main reason why I wanted to do this podcast on this day was because of the Mike Singer report that came out over the weekend that there would be potentially three teams uh, via the Denver Post, uh, three teams that would reportedly go after Jeremy Grant in the offseason, and that was Atlanta, Detroit, and Phoenix. Um, I think that I think that Denver is the best place for Grant in this offseason, but it's not really up to me. I'm not going to act like I'm going to get into his head on this. But let's first talk about what is likely from teams that will go after Jeremy Grant. Because there aren't very many. Uh, there are very few teams that have cap space in general and very few teams that would use that cap space on Jeremy Grant specifically. Um, the six teams that project to have cap space to get him. Atlanta. They have $43 million. New York has $42 million. Uh, Detroit has $28 million. Charlotte has $22.5 million. Miami has $21 million. And Phoenix has $19 million. So all of those teams can throw a ballpark offer at Jeremy Grant and not be laughed at. Like, not be laughed at due to how low the offer is. Um, there are the threats to go after the big names. And Grant is one of the big names on the off, in the offseason based off of what he did in the playoffs. So let's talk about which of those six is unlikely to go after Grant. I think Detroit is the top of that list. They're still rebuilding. They still have Blake Griffin on their roster, so the fit isn't clean. And they also need to save some money to retain Christian Wood if that's what they want. Christian Wood was really good. I think he fits what they want to do. And they're going to continue rebuilding. I think Grant's more of a championship piece. Um, Charlotte, they have Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington on their roster. Those are two similarly sized and similar role forwards who are young. They may continue to grow into bigger roles. Um, I think that Charlotte could, should continue to develop those guys, continue starting Bridges at the three, P.J. at the four, and just go forward with that because I think that makes the most sense as a rebuilding team. Uh, but if they want to speed up their rebuild, then they have the money to go for Grant. Um, I just don't think they will. But here are the four teams that I think could make a run at them. Atlanta is the top of that list. 
They are desperate to quickly build around Trey Young to give him additional talent that's competent, can make up for his deficiencies defensively. Uh, Grant isn't the perfect guy to do that, and especially with their roster. Uh, they already have John Collins. They have Clint Capella. DeAndre Hunter was a rookie they just drafted fourth overall. Um, but they're desperate, and they may just want to add Grant and add talent and say, hey, you're, you're going to start somewhere. We're not sure where yet, but he'd probably start at the three with Collins at the four and Clint Capella at the five. That's not a lot of defense, or that's not a lot of offense, but it's a good enough defensive group that they could make it work. Um, the Knicks are the next team. They did the, something similar with Marcus Morris in the offseason. Uh, they signed him to a movable contract, a two-year $30 million contract, if I recall. And then they exchanged him at the deadline for a trade asset. They might decide to do the same thing again this year. Um, and it would make sense for them too. Uh, I'm not sure if Grant is the guy. They already have. Uh, they've already seen what what it means to start Marcus Morris at the three, uh, because they already had Julius Randle at the four, and they started Taj Gibson at the five. Uh, they probably won't do that again. They'll probably start Mitchell Robinson at the five, but you never know. Maybe they decide to go out and get a different guy. But Julius Randle and Jeremy Grant, it's not a great fit on paper, and I don't think it's a great fit in practice. So. I doubt that they fully go at him, but they're the Knicks. They could do literally anything. Um, Miami is another team. They could technically replace Jay Crowder with Jeremy Grant in the offseason and be even more dynamic than what they are. Uh, Grant would fit their culture really well. He's a hard worker. He just wants to play ball. He, I mean, he's he's kind of kind of like, I mean... He's, he's a hard worker, to be clear. And I think playing with a guy like Jimmy Butler or a guy like Bam Adebayo, it would probably be appealing to him. If they asked, I think he would probably pick up the phone and see what they had to say. They just might not ask. They might try to keep their powder dry until the summer of 2021. And I don't think Grant is in the position where he wants to sign a one-year contract. I think he'd rather sign something with multiple years. Um, the reason why... The Heat didn't trade for Danilo Gallinari in the offseason or in the at the trade deadline this past year was because they wanted to keep 2021 offseason money clear. And I think it's the right call. But we'll just have to see. Phoenix is another team, and they're probably the most dangerous team to go for Grant because they have a formula with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton that they're going to want to follow, and Denver is a team that they probably want to model themselves after. They may think that they have enough with Kelly Oubre on their roster, with uh, Cam Johnson, who they just drafted. Mikhail Bridges is great. Ricky Rubio's the off the uh, the other guard who's also a playmaker. They have a lot of good pieces there, good dynamic pieces. Um, they're just waiting for... I mean, Booker's already a star, but they're waiting for DeAndre Ayton to take that star leap as well. Um, they could be really dangerous, and they may they may see Grant as a guy that takes them over the top. Um, and they are desperate to make the playoffs as well. So that's a team that they should that Denver should watch out for. I just don't think I don't think he goes to Phoenix. It, it's just something about I I don't think he will go there. Um. But I'm not going to assume what he wants because this is his career. It would be dumb for me to assume. So 
if I were to prioritize various things for like if I was in Grant's position, if I wanted money in this season only, I would go Atlanta, New York, or Miami. All of those teams can pay him big bucks. If I wanted money for a long-term deal, I would go with Atlanta, Phoenix, or Denver. Uh, those teams will pay up long-term in order to keep them because they have young talent and he's young too. Uh, a starting role, if he wanted that going forward, I would prefer Denver or Phoenix. And a winning culture, I would think Denver or Miami. Those two teams, I think Denver, Phoenix, and Miami are probably the three teams that I would watch out for. Because if Miami decides that they don't feel like waiting for 2021 free agency, because they just made the finals, they're very good, they're very dynamic. If they add Jeremy Grant to that group, maybe they lose Jay Crowder, maybe they lose Goran Dragic, but hope Tyler Hero and Kendrick Nunn can continue to develop. If they think that that's enough, then they just might decide to do it. I don't know if that's what they would do, but those are the three teams that I would circle. Denver, Phoenix, and Miami. All five could realistically offer... Four years, $70 million. That's the contract I expect Grant to sign at the end of the day. I hope the Nuggets are the team that pays him that money. I would even offer him a declining structure on that deal and just eat the tax bill now. I don't think the Nuggets would pay the tax, but that's what I would do, and it's not my money. So it is what it is. But if I were the Nuggets, I would send him a four-year, $70 million contract with an 8% declining structure. That's the maximum you can do. Uh, he would be paid roughly $20 million in his first season, closer to $15 million by the fourth season. That would allow Denver to max out MPJ in the future without having to trade Murray, Jokic, and Grant. That's probably the best thing they can do. They have to make the money work going forward, and even if the cap does spike in the future, you can't account for that. It might not. Uh, we, we don't know what COVID is going to do to the long-term revenue for the NBA. So factoring that in and doing the right thing up front might help this team down the line when they're competing for championships going forward. That'll do it for this episode of Nuggets Numbers. Make sure to tune in across the week as we continue to have off-season content on denverstiffs.com. Had a lot of fun with this season and don't want it to end, so we're going to continue to write about these things and, and continue to give you the off-season content that you're looking for. Uh, from podcasts to articles to news that comes out to analysis pieces. We'll do a roundtable here or there. Uh, comment down below what you're interested in for upcoming episodes or for upcoming segments of The Climb on uh, either Twitter or Denver Stiffs in the comment section. I think it's going to be interesting to hear your opinions on what are the most important reasons why Denver is the team that they are today and how they continue to go from the team they are today to a championship winner. That'll do it for this episode. We'll talk to you guys very soon.